This is the Nietzsche Podcast. When we began last week, we looked at how the city formed, the ancient city, and uh, speaking here of the cities of Greece and in ancient Italy, and the sort of religious background, the beliefs upon which those cities were founded. And so that was sort of the birth of the ancient city. This week, we're going to look at the the life and then eventual death of the social order that ruled during the time of the ancient city. But to recap briefly, Fustel de Colange, uh, he establishes that the ancient Greeks and the Romans of distant antiquity lived in this world of countless gods and in every house, at every boundary line, uh, in the many temples of the city, right? And in the natural world all around him, everywhere, there were these demanding, capricious deities, which required him to provide nourishment in the form of sacrifices and to scrupulously attend to the rituals which had been established since time immemorial and preserve them in the exact form that they'd been handed down to him by his ancestors. This type of relationship with the gods seems to originate with the very oldest of these beliefs, which were the worship of the family hearth as the sort of center of the household divinities, the symbol of the family's continuity beyond any one individual, and the worship of the dead based on the belief that men continued living in the earth at the family tomb after they had passed away and thus needed to be fed and taken care of in their afterlife. These deceased ancestors became gods, and the living Roman or the living Greek, uh, they believed you know, quite the similar things in distant antiquity, they saw their lives as a sort of period of service and duty to these ancestors and you know they had the care of the property which is yours for the time being but over which you are only the steward and uh, that's only true if you're the eldest brother right and therefore you know you're the patriarch of the household when your father dies because otherwise you're not even the steward of the family property but in essence part of that property right um now we also discussed how the ideas of private property that we have in modern times don't really resemble what the Greeks believed in because the patriarch could not sell his family's lands because to do so would be to effectively destroy the afterlife of his family's religion and therefore you know, greatly transgress and offend the domestic gods. And so the family and the lands were bound together. Uh, Coulange writes of how the hearthstone, the sort of center of the familial worship, was this thing that was immovable and set into place and meant religiously not to be moved, but also just practically speaking, it, it, it represented the sedentary lifestyle, right? And so the family and the land are indivisible and the family's members are all bound together by religious ritual. And so a family is not just a biological thing. It's not um, necessarily having to do with maybe in the modern sense that we would think of a family, right? Where, um, we think of adopting people into our family and um, none of this was how they conceived of it's the, of the family. It was a purely religious structure or not purely, it was primarily, we should say. And so nobody could be part of two families in the same way that you can't be part of two different religions. Every family had its own worship and its own law. When a woman was married, she was excommunicated from her family's religion, her birth family, and became part of the new one. Um, and so... These domestic religions, they remain independent and indivisible, but over time, 
steadily people aggregate into greater and greater uh, or larger and larger associations, right? First joining together families into the curia or fratria, depending on whether we're using the Latin or the Greek term. And then these broader associations become tribes. And finally, we find the birth of the city when these tribes join together. At all of these levels of joining, um, a new religion is formed that is sort of a superstructure above all these independent, indivisible religions. And so, you know, the family still maintains its own insular secret worship, but then they join together into a curia and worship gods common to all of them while keeping the family religion independent. And then the curies join together by worship of the gods common to all of the tribe. And finally, the city religion is established. And with it, the city government, because at this time in Greece and Italy, there's no notion of a law that was not derived from religion. Religion was master over everything in one's life, and the state, as it existed, um, basically existed for the function of serving the gods that protected the entire city and its members. Um, the state was therefore absolute, because to violate one of these laws would mean violating the dictate of the deities that protect you, right, and could visit their wrath upon you. And so even though the matters of the tribe, for example, remained under the control of the chiefs of the tribe, all matters just solely internal to the tribe, right? And then all the way down to the patriarchs of the families, they remain independent in terms of matters in, in, insular to their family. But what this indicates was not individual liberty, right, but a sort of federated system of autocracies. And at this time, such a concept as individual liberty is totally unknown. You know, the father of the household has absolute control over the lives in his household, and uh, that, that culminates, you know, we go up all these levels to the ruler of the city who is an absolute king over the municipal government, which has total power, you know, concerning the city and the lives of all the inhabitants in it. De Coulange describes in the chapter entitled The Gods of the City, how the city religion was founded, quote, We must not lose sight of the fact that among the ancients, what formed the bond of every society was a worship. Just as a domestic altar held the members of a family grouped around it, so the city was the collective group of those who had the same protecting deities and who performed the religious ceremony at the same altar. The city altar was enclosed within a, bu a building which the Greeks called the Britannium and which the Romans called the Temple of Vesta. There was nothing more sacred within the city than this altar on which the sacred fire was always maintained. This veneration, it is true, became weakened in Greece at a very early date because the Greek imagination allowed itself to be turned aside by more splendid temples, richer legends, and more beautiful statues. But it never became enfeebled at Rome. The Romans never abandoned the conviction that the destiny of the city was connected with this fire, which represented the gods. End quote. And further down in the chapter, Collange writes, quote, just as the worship of the domestic hearth was secret and the family alone had a right to take part in it, so the worship of the public fire was concealed from strangers. No one, unless he were a citizen, could take part at a sacrifice. Even the look of a stranger sullied the religious act. Every city had gods who belonged to it alone. These gods were generally of the same nature as those of the primitive religion of families. They were called laures, penates, genii, demons, heroes, under all these names were human souls deified, end quote. And so remember, 
the origin of this is ancestor worship, or when we get to the level like the tribal level or the city level, they tend to worship like particularly outstanding individuals, like it's hero worship, right? But it's hero worship by people who feel that they are in some sense descended from that hero, whether that was actually true or just by, you know, sort of convention. And uh, Coulange quotes Solon, the sort of legendary democratic reformer at Athens, the legislator who opened up the democracy there. Solon says, quote, honor with a worship, the chiefs of the country, the dead who live under the earth, end quote. And so in Solon's time, they no longer, it doesn't seem anyway, that they no longer believe that they were literally living in the same body under the earth. Um, you already have sort of these ideas of the underworld and Elysium and all of that, but um, you know, as with the family tomb, all those men who had served the public good or who were great heroes in the, you know, sort of ancestral history of the city and were buried on its lands came to be gods who defended the city and protected it from foreigners. And there's still this notion of the gods being sort of regional or local figures, even if they had sort of metaphysical ideas, if we start to separate the soul from the body, right, is really the big thing. But this, the soul isn't any more, um, it's not like it's not present, right? Um, it's still tied to that particular area of the land. But again, we can see how the dead who live under the earth, he's still speaking in the language of the very antiquated beliefs before they even had the, any idea of Tartarus or the Elysian fields or anything like that. Um, and so he, he points out, uh, Collange does how the entire plot of Oedipus Colonius is based upon the belief that the body of a man who's about to die will become a God. And thus Athens and Thebes sort of vie with one another to claim this powerful man. And in so doing claim a future God and a future protector of the city. Right. And so Collange writes, quote, it was a great piece of good fortune for a city to possess the bodies of men of some mark. Mantineus spoke with pride of the bones of Arcus, Thebes of those of Geryon, Messene of those of Aristomenes. To procure these precious relics, a ruse was sometimes resorted to. Herodotus relates by what unfair means the Spartans carried off the bones of Orestes. These bones, it is true, to which the soul of a hero was attached, gave the Spartans a victory immediately. As soon as Athens had acquired power, the first use that she made of it was to seize upon the bones of Theseus, who had been buried at the Isle of Skyros, and to build a temple for them in the city in order to increase the number of her protecting deities. End quote. Um, so it's funny anecdotes like those where I almost sort of wonder about the internal logic of it, right? I mean, if you could make off with the bones of, uh, you know, a god from another city, would they still, I sort of think about it from the perspective of like, would that god really want to protect your city though if his bones had been abducted? Wouldn't it be sort of like you kidnapping that god? But it, on the other hand, regardless of how the the logic of it works, because I could still imagine some argument that perhaps you know, by the, you know, in the same way that maybe a woman is excommunicated from her family's religion and inducted into another one, and that there was sort of this ritual of bride kidnapping where you carry her over the threshold and she's, uh, you know, obliged to resist, right? 
I think they had some concept that maybe you could like maybe you could kidnap a god of another city and sort of the power of all the other gods in your city will sort of compel this god by force to use his divine favor to protect you. So I'm not exactly sure how that all works, but more than all of that, it it shows how genuine the belief was because people risked a great deal to do things like steal off the bones of, or, you know, Orestes or to, um, you know, if you acquire geopolitical power in the region as Athens did, and the first use you make of that power is to go obtain some relics, right? It shows that there is a genuine belief there that because it's motivating their action. And that's sort of the, the only proof we could even really look for is that at great cost or risk, they pursued that end, right? And that only makes sense when we consider it in line of these beliefs. Um, and I, I guess I just, I'm sidetracking on this because I think we moderns interpret history or there's a tendency to do so very cynically to always assume like material financial motives or the like, right? But much of ancient history makes no sense if we interpret it that way. Um, and so the same is true of the sacred fire, right? It's maintenance and the things demanded of the people who maintained it, the rules they had to observe were not very practical. Um, Coulange also quotes from another historian who relates that when during the time of the Punic Wars, some Samnites uh, came too near to where the sacred fire was in Rome and sort of caused a disturbance. Uh, the Romans treated any disturbance that happened near their sacred fire as a real threat. In Coulange, he cites the public declaration from a senator that the surest way to destroy the progress of the city and ruin the destiny of Rome would be to destroy its sacred fire. So, of course, the Samnites were executed, right? because this was considered a very real threat. And it's just sort of taken as a matter of course that obviously if they put out our sacred fire or cast something impure into it, the city's doomed. Um, and so the founders of cities were everywhere worshipped as gods. The city was founded with the hope that powerful protecting deities would watch over them as long as you were you know, making the offerings in the correct way. And that meant that the founding families, these few hundreds of families that joined together to create the cities, were effectively priests of the city religion, right? Or at least like the potter of each family, the father, the eldest male, who was the head of the house. He was the only real citizen in the city, right? Because he represented his entire family in all matters that were voted on democratically. Uh, his was the only vote in the Senate of Rome or in the Greek assemblies, right? And so this is the basis upon which the aristocracy of the early cities is formed. It's founded upon a religion. This is where they're, from where their authority flowed, we might say, right? At least in the minds of the people living in these societies. It was by having a domestic religion and maintaining the worship of one's ancestors and the hearth of your family that one showed oneself to be, you know, in, in some sense, like a full human being in their eyes, right? Worthy of respect or holding sway in the destiny of, of the polity. And all those who were outside of this, um, this religious system, we might say, which means those families who had allowed their domestic religion to collapse or who had migrated and founded houses without a sacred hearth, or all those younger branches of a family who were unable to inherit any property within the current religion and then who struck out on their own or clients, which is to say indentured servants or slaves of a family 
who sometimes were eventually freed, right? Or bastard sons who were disavowed by their fathers. All of these people over the long generations swelled to a great number. These are the people who had no family, as they would have said it, and thus had no established religion. They were not even looked on as really worthy of any account by the um, the people who were the citizens of the cities. Um, these are the class of people called the plebeians or the plebs. We can't really understand that class distinction with the moral perspective of today, which would be based on a sort of, again, like financial stratification of society, because the question of why these people can't be admitted into the city or why can't they have rights in it, that never would have even crossed the minds of the Greek or Roman aristocrat. The city was for people of the same religion. Its laws governed them. It protected them. It wasn't for anyone else. As with the familial religion, anyone who approached the sacred fire, right, the temple of Vesta, who was a stranger to the city's religion, would have offended the gods who protected that fire and would have threatened the city. So strangers have to be excluded, and this meant political as well as religious exclusion. The magistrates that um, you know took care of making sacrifices and offerings were also political office holders. And so the thought of a magistrate taking care of the sacrifices who, you know, happens to be an outsider to the city's religion was unthinkable. And so any holding of political power by people outside of the families that founded the city in the earliest days of the ancient cities, that was just unthinkable. And so the plebs remained outside of society at the time of the city's founding. Uh, De Colonge writes, quote, we find this class around almost all the ancient cities, but separated by a line of demarcation. Originally, a Greek city was double. There was a city which was built ordinarily on the summit of some hill. It had been built with religious rites and enclosed the sanctuary of the national gods. At the foot of the hill was found an agglomeration of houses which were built without any religious ceremony and without a sacred enclosure. These were the dwellings of the plebeians who could not live in the sacred city. At Rome, the difference between the two classes was striking. The city of the patricians and their clients was the one that Romulus founded according to the rites of the Palatine. The dwellings of the plebs were in the asylum, a species of enclosure situated on the slope of the Capitoline Hill, where Romulus admitted people without hearth or home whom he could not admit into his city. Later, when new plebeians came to Rome, as they were strangers to the religion of the city, they were established on the Aventine, that is to say, without the pomerium of the religious city. One word characterizes these plebeians. They were without a hearth. They did not possess, in the beginning at least, any domestic altars. Their adversaries were always reproaching them for having no ancestors, which certainly meant that they had not the worship of ancestors and had no family tomb they could carry out their funeral repast. They had no father, potter, that is to say. They ascended the series of their ascendants in vain. They never arrived at a religious family chief. They had no family, gentum non habent. They have no gens, that is to say, they only had the natural family. As to the one which religion formed and constituted, they had not that, end quote. And so without their religion. The plebs had virtually no rights, and it seems likely from Coulange's reading of the various historians 
of the ancient world that a patrician could strike or even kill them without consequence. Even the clients of patrician families, you know, another term for the slaves of the patricians, right? They still lived under the protection of the law or under the aegis of the law, we might say, you know, to some extent. You know, and especially as the centuries went on, the slaves increasingly gained uh, rights under the municipal laws that limited the master's ability to do things like to kill them or, in you know, other cases created legal opportunities for the slaves to become emancipated. But we might say that the slave, while he might be under the absolute control of the master of the household, could walk through the streets of the city knowing that the law would punish anyone who attacked him, right? This isn't to say that the slave had it better than the plebeian, but that, you know, simply in some respects, he had more legal rights, or rather he had some, whereas the, the plebeian had none, right? The plebeian had no rights, right? So he's, on the one hand, the plebeian is free, but he doesn't even have this assurance of his own safety when out in public. Um, and the city governments originally enforced no laws in the communities of the plebs. So there's no like government protecting you from one another either. They're entirely a people outside of the government of the city um, versus the clients who had some measure of rights, but they're under the absolute control of another individual. So, um, you know, you can make your own judgment about what would be better there. Now, it seems that in the earliest days of Rome, the plebeians didn't even factor into the military organization of the Roman city-state. The historian Dionysius uh, tells us about an incident in Roman history, for example, uh, that goes as follows, quote, The plebeians left Rome and retired to Monsacre. The patricians remained alone in the city with their clients, end quote. A little further in the passage, quote, The plebeians, being dissatisfied, refused to enroll their names. The patricians with their clients took arms and carried on the war, end quote. And so, the plebeians weren't even, as they later were in ancient Rome, the you know sort of military backbone of the city. It seemed that they were completely separate societies, or at least originated that way. And so Cologne tells us we essentially see the development of two parallel social orders due to the private and independent nature of the pagan religions in Italy and Greece during this time. Uh, their religions don't attempt to proselytize to the plebs. I mean, to do such a thing would make no sense, given the basis of the religion. And they have the exact opposite inclination to exclude them, right? And so over long generations of younger branches quitting the family, slaves or clients who were freed or escaped, families whose religions fell into ruin or those who were disowned or exiled or committed some sort of crime— or just those who had come to settle in the region and never had the lands or the means or the will, maybe, to establish a family religion. As the population grew, it was an inevitability of this exclusive style of society that over time, there would be a large number of people outside the city. And in the days before Rome, before Alexander the Great, or any of these large transnational empires, you know, at least before such empires came to Greece and Italy, there was really no factor that would cause this situation to change. There was nothing demanding that the plebeians be integrated into city society. Religion, which can be as strong a motivation as human beings can have, forbid that. And so 
tradition and convention trained people over the generations to be against it. And finally, the law of the city, which was absolute, would have forbidden it as well. Now, several factors eventually do emerge that would necessitate this conflict to begin between these parallel societies. It's a conflict that would eventually end with the overthrow of the old order, and this could be seen from a Nietzschean perspective, perhaps, as the beginning of a moral and religious revolution, which could be extended beyond the political sphere and into the sort of religious revaluation that is affected with the rise of Christianity. But long before there was even the beginnings of Christianity stirring, the rebellion already begins. And it begins as a series of revolutions um, against this old social order, right? These revolutions occurred over decades and generations, sort of in waves. You know, these conflicts, they result in the change of the laws and the religious ideas and the social structure of the various city-states. And sort of one by one over the years, um, these cities begin to um, make amendments to their social order, often with reversions to the old order and counter-revolutions and so on and so forth. But interestingly, however, the first revolution against the social order, sort of the first crack in the foundation, the beginning of the crumbling of the ancient city, it doesn't come from the plebeians. Um, the outcome of this revolution will greatly affect the plebs and the conflict of the orders, as it was later called, and sort of set the stage for these later revolutions. But the first revolution comes from the aristocracy. It's a revolution of the patricians against their kings. And this happened in various cities all across uh, Greece and Italy. Here is de Coulange in the chapter of the first revolution. Quote, The king was not the only king. Every potter was king in his own gens. Even at Rome, it was an ancient custom to call each one of these powerful patrons by the name of king. At Athens, every fratry and every tribe had its chief, and by the side of the king of the city, there were the kings of the tribes. It was a hierarchy of chiefs, all having, in a more or less extended domain, the same attributes and the same inviolability. The king of the city did not exercise his authority over the entire population. The interiors of the families and all the clients escaped his action. Like the feudal king who had as subjects only a few powerful vassals, this king of the ancient city commanded only the chiefs of the tribes and the gentes, each one of whom might be individually as powerful as he and who united were much more powerful. We can easily believe that he had some difficulty in commanding obedience. Men would have great respect for him because he was the head of the worship and guardian of the sacred hearth, but they might, they might not be very submissive since he had little power. The governors and the governed were not long in perceiving that they were not of the same opinion on the measure of obedience that was due. The kings wished to be powerful, and the patres preferred that he, he should not be. A struggle then commenced in all the cities between the aristocracy and the kings." End quote. So obviously the details as to how this played out were different in every city. But what we see in the limited evidence that's available and sort of the indications left over by like language and convention, that the kingly office was essentially stripped of all of its political powers, but left with the religious powers in a process that occurred over perhaps centuries. Now, the king could not be done away with absolutely, right? Um, 
the aristocracy wouldn't be willing to do that anyway. It would sort of be contrary to their religious beliefs. But they came to see the political powers of the kingship as secondary and not of fundamental importance to the religious office. The ancients actually tell us this very straightforwardly, and Coulonge includes their words to make his case uh, for him. Plutarch writes, quote, As the kings displayed pride and rigor in their commands, the greater part of the Greeks took away their power and left them only the care of their religion, end quote. Aristotle says, quote, In very ancient times, kings had absolute power in peace and war. But in the course of time, some renounced this power voluntarily. From others, it was taken by force. And nothing was left to these kings but care of the sacrifices, end quote. Herodotus tells us of the city of Cyrene that, quote, They left to Battus, a descendant of the kings, the care of the worship and the possession of the sacred lands, but they took away all the power which his fathers had enjoyed. End quote. And so, to take away the political power of the king was to perceive the political power as separate from the religious power, which is, if we reflect on this for a moment, a great innovation in thought. By deciding to govern themselves and not let a king wield political power over them, the patriciates of these cities were creating the idea that a law exists outside of the religion. Since religious laws during this time and political laws were seen as essentially the same thing, um, it's a revolution in thought which the aristocrats are affecting by doing this. Independent of the political revolution which took place, um, you know, of, of actually overthrowing the king in terms of the real political power that the king ha held, they were also undertaking a revolution in sort of the Western mind, right? They're separating the political from the religious for the first time. And so we should remember that, you know, even the laws forbidding things like murder, the murder of people within the city, right? They're observed so as not to transgress against the divinity by unjustly spilling the blood of those who offer it sacrifices, right? It's not because murder is wrong in and of itself. The laws governing religion had just as much of a demand on the actions and the lives of the people in the city as did the laws governing how they interacted with one another. That's why it was illegal to refuse to attend the offering of the repast for the city's deities or not to show up to serve your time on the committee or not to go vote on the major issues of the city. You know, and all the municipal laws of a practical nature, or what we would call today a practical nature, were there to facilitate and make possible the service of the gods by the men of the cities. And all the laws governing religion exacted just as much of a heavy toll of duty and obligation as all of our laws and regulations do today in secular society, if not more so, right? So, this distinction between politics and religion, it really was unknown to them or like hadn't been conceived of yet. And by separating the two, the aristocrats created a radical notion. And in addition to this radical separation of law from religion, the aristocrats did something else in this first revolution uh, in terms of like the downstream consequences of their action. By creating a danger to the power of the kings... By, by setting up this opposition between aristocracy and king, 
they pushed the kings to look for some other source of power by which they could oppose themselves to the aristocracy. The kings of the various cities began to look outside of their respective patriciates. And, you know, the, they who would be the most logical source of power to look for to combat the aristocracy, right? That would be, of course, the lower classes, the plebeians. And so this is the basic calculation, first on the part of the aristocracy, that it could together overthrow the king politically, and on the part of the kings, or in later times, what they call tyrants, which is basically more like less of sort of the monarchical, traditional religious authority of like a divinely appointed ruler, which is why we would use the term kings for sort of the older absolute monarchs. Later, the tyrants were sort of more like a, a just a dictator, what we would call in modern terms like a dictator, right? But basically, any man who, whether from, you know, a, a claim of historical right to political power or simply because he felt he had the might to seize political power for himself. Everyone who wanted to rule autocratically and subvert the aristocratic order would uh, appeal to the lower classes. And so the aristocracy calculates they can together overthrow the king, the kings, or later the tyrants calculate that with the help of the lower classes, they can subdue the aristocrats. And so once we understand this relatively simple pattern, um, we can see how it plays out time and time again in Greek history. And it gives us a, a great insight into the perceptions and the motivations of the people who played out these conflicts, right? So after the overthrow of the kings, the aristocracies were always paranoid about one of their number making himself a king by drawing on the power of the lower classes. And so, for example, in the figure of Caesar, who came much later than the eras we're talking about, I mean, we, we just mentioned Solon, which I believe is like 6th century Caesar, is therefore almost six whole centuries later that he is uh, coming to power. But the aristocracy was terrified of Caesar. Why? Well, you have a man who is aristocratic himself, um, who has earned a bunch of honor for himself in Gaul, right? He defeats the Greeks' most terrifying enemy. Uh, he's made himself wealthy in doing so. And what does he have? It's that magic um, sort of X factor, the love of the people. That's what makes him most threatening and that they had the suspicion he would make himself a king, which in essence he kind of did. Um, and so basically we have the aristocracy entrench itself and become paranoid about any one of their number like outshining or gaining political power over all the others. And then we have this like class collaborationism that occurs within like monarchist or, you know, popular movements. Um, what's particularly instructive in understanding the history of this conflict is found in the accounts of the seven kings who ruled uh, ancient Rome. It's sort of a legendary period of, of Roman history, um, starting from Romulus all the way into the last king of Rome is overthrown. And, uh, you know, uh, in, in more naive historical retellings, it's like, and then freedom reigned and Rome was a republic. It's like, it was actually an oligarchy, right? If we've been paying attention to how these ancient cities were set up, Rome, there's hardly anything democratic about it um, at the time when, uh, you know, supposedly uh, Brutus, the original Brutus, the, the sort of legendary Brutus that was the 
Brutus who killed Caesar was descended from, um, you know, goes and uh, exiles King Tarquin the Proud, right? Um, they established a, an aristocracy in sort of the manner that we've just been laying out in the abstract. But Coulange recounts the reigns of all these seven kings in brief sketches designed not to really give us a detailed history of these figures and their personalities, but to address the issues at play here of the king's relationship to the aristocracy versus his relationship to the plebeians, as well as the relevant sort of political positions and actions that the king uh, took or the aristocrats took in the course of these uh, seven reigns, which can kind of help inform us in understanding how these the dynamics of this type of conflict um, this period of the Seven Kings predates the period that's um, that is formally called the Conflict of the Orders, right? Which is how I've named the episode. But um, we can see the class conflict come into relief here when we look at the relevant facts as Coulanche presents them. Uh, I'm going to quote this in a slightly abridged form from uh, the section called "The Same Revolution at Rome." This will be a very long reading, but I think it's all very valuable. So, quote. At first, royalty was at Rome what it had been in Greece. The king was the high priest of the city. He was at the same time the supreme judge. He also commanded the armed citizens. Next to him were the patres, who formed a senate. There was but one king because religion enjoined unity in the priesthood and unity in the government. But it was understood that on all important affairs, the king must consult the heads of the confederated families. From this time, historians mention an assembly of the people, but we must inquire what was then the meaning of the word people, populus, that is to say. What was the body politic in the time of the first kings? All the witnesses agree that the people assembled by curies. Now the curies were the collection of gentes. Every gens repaired there in a body and had but one vote. The clients were there, ranged round the potter, consulted perhaps, perhaps giving their advice, contributing towards the single vote that the gens cast, but with no power to give an opinion contrary to that of the potter. This assembly of the curies was, then, nothing but the patrician city united in the presence of the kings. The same conflicts which we have seen in Greece therefore took place in Rome. The history of the seven kings is the history of this long quarrel, the first wished to increase his power and free himself from the authority of the Senate. He sought the favor of the inferior classes, but the fathers were hostile to him, and he perished, assassinated in an assembly of the Senate. The aristocracy immediately dreamed of abolishing royalty, and the fathers fill by turns the place of the king. The lower classes are agitated, it is true. They do not wish to be governed by the chiefs of the gentes and demand the restoration of the royalty. But the patricians satisfy themselves by deciding henceforth it shall be elective, and they fix the forms of election with marvelous skill. The senate must choose the candidate. The patrician assembly of the gentes must confirm this choice, and finally the patrician augurs must declare whether this newly elected king is pleasing to the gods. Numa was elected according to these rules. He was very religious, rather a priest than a warrior, a very scrupulous observer of all the rites of worship, and consequently very strongly attached to the religious constitution of the families in the city. He was a king after the hearts of the patricians 
and died peacefully in his bed. It should seem that, under Numa, royalty had been reduced to its priestly functions. It is at least certain that the religious authority of the king was entirely distinct from the political. What proves this is a double election. The king held religious power, but if the king wished to join the political power to it, imperium, it was necessary that the city should confer it upon him by a special decree. The third king certainly united them in his own hands. He was even more warrior than priest. He neglected and wished to diminish the religious element, the strength of the aristocracy. We see him welcome a multitude of strangers to Rome in spite of the religious principle which excluded them. He even dared to live among them on the Caelian Hill. We also see him distribute to the plebeians lands, the revenue of which up to that time had been appropriated to defraying the expenses of the sacrifices. The patricians accused him of having neglected the rites, and what was even worse, of having modified and altered them. And so he died like Romulus. The gods of the patricians destroyed him and his sons with a thunderbolt. This event restored the supremacy to the Senate, which set up a king of its own choice. Ancus scrupulously observed all the religious rites, made war as seldom as possible, and passed his life in the temples. Dear to the patricians, he died in his bed. The fifth king was Tarquin, who obtained the throne in spite of the Senate and by help of the lower classes. He was troubled little with religious scruples. Indeed, he was very incredulous. Nothing less than a miracle could convince him of the science of the augurs. He was an enemy of the ancient families. He created patricians and changed the old religious constitution of the city as much as possible. Tarquin was assassinated. The sixth king gained possession of the throne by a stratagem. It should seem, indeed, that the Senate never recognized him as a legitimate king. He flattered the lower classes, distributed lands among them without regard to the rights of property, and even conferred political rights upon them. Servius was murdered on the steps of the Senate House. The quarrel between the kings and the aristocracy assumed the character of social struggle. The king sided with the people and depended for support upon the clients and the plebs. To the patrician order, so powerfully organized, they opposed the lower classes, so numerous at Rome. The aristocracy then found itself threatened by a double peril, the worst of which was not the necessity of giving way before royalty. It saw rising in its rear the classes it despised. It saw plebs organizing, a class without religion and without a sacred fire. End quote. Um, we'll end the reading here, but I mean, the seventh king of Rome, that's the famous, uh, you know, uh, king who's overthrown and the Republic installed. Um, now, so we'll, we can see that even though the, the lower classes never get anything close to enfranchisement or like inclusion in the in-group with the patricians of the Roman city, they're always sort of thwarted, right? Nevertheless, the struggle has clearly begun even at these early date, uh, dates and the dynamics that we've begun to describe are already playing out. Um, there's the connection between the interest of the plebs and that of the monarchs. And then the organized power structure of the aristocracy that strikes down the kings with regularity whenever they do anything which breaks the rules and norms, which, um, you know, the aristocracy have established as part of the social order. And while we can certainly analyze their actions from the standpoint that they were trying to maintain their wealth and privilege, right, must also keep in mind the power that religion had over them and the fact that they felt they, they owned the city and it was theirs 
because it belongs to their ancestors. Their ancestors created it. And they had the right to this land because, in some sense, they needed that right in order to carry out the responsibility, um, their various responsibilities to the sacred dead who lived on the land. And so there were motivations for opposing the organizing of the lower classes and opposing the pride and ambition of kings that went beyond personal material interest. Their concern for the will of the gods, according to Collange, was the most important issue. Of course, you know, the degree to which religion was dominant in the minds of the patriciate classes in Greece as well as in Rome begins to wane from this point onward. It's a very slow and steady process. Um, but, you know, it should be noted, the later we proceed in history in the time span of the revolutions, which cover perhaps five or six centuries, the less and less the men of these cities are bound by these beliefs. Um, and I think that begins... That process begins with that first innovation of the religious law separating from the political law. Um, and once it's begun, it only begins to accelerate because once you've already said we can make this set of laws that are binding on men that don't have anything to do with a dictate from you know the divinities, right? Why can't you write another uh, sort of mandate upon the people that comes purely from men, right? Why can't you write a whole system of laws, a whole system of political governance that is freely acknowledged as solely emerging out of the minds of men, right? And of course, you could say, well, the whole social system, the whole religion came out of the minds of men, which is certainly true, but, um, but they didn't believe that was true. And that's why they felt that they couldn't change these conventions. And as we talked about last time, this even involved sticking to the exact set of syllables, the exact pronunciation, the exact type of, you know, earthenware cups that you use during the rituals. Um, it was all fixed and immovable because they believed it came from the gods. Um, once you introduce the idea that you could be governed simply by yourselves, right? Uh, that's a whole can of worms that you've opened. And so now it was a religious law that prevented the non-landholding plebs in Rome or the sort of serf-like class of Thetes in Athens from holding the office of a magistrate in the city government because these were religious offices, as we've mentioned. But suppose that these offices were decoupled from the political office and new offices created which were strictly political. Well, as the generations went on, this is exactly what started to happen. But a necessary prerequisite to this was, well, first that, you know, just as the kingship became purely ceremonial, uh, first, many of the positions that once held political power became divested of them. And this didn't just happen to the kingship. It kind of begins to echo down through the social system um, into the tribes and the gentes and the fratrias and the families even. Um, the aristocracies over time across Greece and Italy almost all succeeded in removing power from the kings and sort of consolidating it into a senatorial body of the men of the city, um, which, you know, again, it's far from democratic. Um, it's made up of members chosen by heredity and by ancestral right. Um, but, you know, so aside from some outliers like Athens, um, this uh, you know, again, I guess it's obvious at this point, but I'm just, you know, emphasizing that the overthrow of kings, especially as it's usually portrayed in like Roman history and even taught that way today, 
we are getting that often from the perspective of aristocratic historians who see those kings as very, um, you know, bad people because they were a threat to their aristocratic, you know, ethos or whatever. I, I mean, I, and a quick note about the, the remark about the third king of Rome dying by thunderbolt, right? I think that's from some very dry humor in this remark uh, from Coulange uh, that I really enjoy and that he says the patricians killed him with a thunderbolt because, you know, these are the people who wrote that into the annals of Roman history. And it's stories like these in early Roman history that have sort of led some to regard all the events recounted before the early days of the Republic as sort of like mere myths. I think Collange takes a more mature view and he, he's reading between the lines. And I think he's correct that what likely happened is the king is probably just assassinated and overthrown by the nobility. And then later in history, they write into the histories that, you know, he was he's struck down by the gods. He's therefore destroyed by the power of the gods for offending the religion of the city, right? And um, that maybe this isn't even like a lie. It's sort of, um, you know, how they're how they were destined to interpret the chain of events, right? Okay, so we'll cover these next two revolutions that then happen. Uh, the reasons for these, I think, are equally straightforward to understand. They follow each other in sort of a natural seeming sequence. So the next thing that happens is the family structure, which emerges originally as the foundational political entity and religious entity, effectively a little micro society that's run as an absolute dictatorship. Well, the family structure is reformed. The first major change was the disappearance of primogeniture, the eldest son inheriting all the lands and his brothers, you know, remaining thus as part of his household and sort of service to the eldest son. We can imagine how over the generations, primogeniture would produce some very large families. And as each brother marries and has children, create all these branches and sub branches, all of whom are completely disenfranchised and subservient, the kind of resentment that that would generate. Uh, more than that, they're all trying to live off the same plot of land, which is indivisible and inviolable, right? And so Collange admits, we have no real precise information on this point. Um, we All that's certain is that at some point in the past, primogeniture existed, but it later disappeared. And it would seem to have already kind of disappeared by the time we're getting the written record. So it's um, completely, it's so ancient that we only have the echoes of a time when it was already disappearing, right? So uh, Coulange posits the hypothesis that perhaps just as there was civil unrest later on, like in, on the city level with violence in the streets, um, he, he thinks that in many of these cases, in scattered incidents, that would probably have become more common as the years went on. There must have been sort of like familial unrest, like violence in the home, brothers slaying their eldest brother to overthrow him, right? Or an eldest brother using violence to force his younger siblings from leaving, um, you know, and so on and so forth. And that eventually the detriment that primogeniture would have to the interests of, it would hit a critical mass where it's detrimental to the interests of enough people that would force them into physical conflict. And at that point, once that happens to enough families, primogeniture would be cease to be the accepted uh, convention. Uh, so, you know, again, this would happen in fits and starts or in waves, we might say, but the rules abolished and eventually all the brothers can inherit and the family lands begin to be divided and younger brothers go out and start their own hearths. We see in Rome that many families, such as the Claudii, who had split into various branches, still gathered together for decades and even centuries afterwards to their common ancestral tomb. 
a site sacred only to the Claudian gens, where they did a funerary repast in common. But, uh, you know, nevertheless, primogeniture had had to have been abolished in order for the gens to sort of be established, right? Um, and for all the branches to begin to establish their own new families. In Latin, the term is singuli singulus familias, incipient habere. Individual men begin to have individual families. And then another thing happens within the home is the clients, the servants who existed as a sort of subordinate class within the family structure, become free. This happened throughout Greece and Italy. Um, the clients, they inherited their position in the family structure, right? So by the time the clients are attaining their freedom, it's not as if they'd been like taken into slavery and in living memory or even in any recent ancestors like living memory. Um, you know, these are not just merely individuals who were enslaved, but um, bloodlines that existed in slavery, right? Within the individual households. But over time, they began to acquire more freedoms. And that's probably from a practical need as well, as with the disappearance of primogeniture. De Coulange describes this uh, here, uh, quote, it appears that even under the rule of this more generous aristocracy, the condition of the lower classes was improved. For certainly at that time it obtained possession of lots of land on the single condition of paying a rent, which was fixed at one-sixth of the harvest. These men were thus almost emancipated, having a home and no longer living under the master's eye, they breathed more freely and labored for their own profit. End quote. So remember, they're sort of given their own lands to live on, but land at this time in and around the cities is not something you buy or sell, right? Every boundary is inviolable. The boundaries between lands are sacred even. Um, they're determined by tradition and convention. Uh, they mark the domains of different gods, all mutually hostile to strangers. And so over time, it seems to have become more practical that rather than sort of like micromanaging the lives of the clients, the masters just let them have their own plot of land and simply extracted a rent. And over time, this became convention for the most part. The clients lived free of being commanded and dominated in every moment of their lives. Their ownership sort of becomes almost a mere formality where they just sort of owe a rent. Um, you know. But that, the thing is, the master still has to extract something from them in exchange for this sense of freedom. But this created an even more precarious social order, right? Continuing in the passage, Colange writes, quote, For though they were really in possession of the soil, no formal law assured them either of this possession or the independence that flowed from it. We see in Plutarch that the former patron could renew his claim upon his former servant. If the annual rent was not paid or for any other cause, these men relapsed into a sort of slavery. End quote. So, you know, the lands that they've been given, these aren't ancestral lands. Um, and, you know, so it's like they don't really, they're not really free men in the eyes of the law, and this, um, you know, bond that the master has on them can sort of be called back into into <laughs> action at any time, we might say, right? Um, probably the clumsy way to put it. But anyway, something like this situation existed in all the various polis of the era before the uh, 6th century BCE. Now, that precarious social position pushed the lower classes, the sort of disenfranchised cl classes of Greece, into conflict with the patricians of the various city-states, 
And in almost all of these cities, there was violence and civil unrest, and many city-states made concessions to the lower classes as a result. But even in the most remarkable among those city-states, which would be uh, Athens, uh, where there was almost no such unrest or violence between the Eupatrids and the clients, um, or we might call them former clients or pseudo-clients at this point, nevertheless, a reconciliation between the lower and upper classes still had to be affected through the law. Um, and this is where the figure of uh, Solon, the famous legislator, uh, become, you know, sort of comes out of the scene. Um, it's common to see historians, both ancient and modern, suggest that Solon abolished debts or forgave the debts of the poor. That's sort of like a common thing to say about Solon. Coulange thinks this is anachronistic because these people at this time didn't have a system of lending. The idea of, of a rich man lending to a poor man is rather unbelievable given the social structure. And also the idea of mortgaging property was kind of unheard of. It wouldn't have made any sense given their religious beliefs. Coulange again reads between the lines and alleges that the people whose debts were paid were not the poor, as we might think of them now, who'd like taken out loans and hadn't been able to pay them, something which he says would not have happened. At least that there wasn't any sort of institutional practice. Or it wouldn't have happened on any large scale. It would have been anomalous and weird if that did happen, right? If the rich man lent to the poor and then he couldn't pay him. So rather, these were clients living on their allotted lands, forced to pay rents out of the fruits of their labor. The shaking off of burdens, as it's often called, of his uh, the Salon reforms. Uh, these were the burdens of slavery. Coulange draws on the words of Aristotle, who says, quote, Solon put an end to the slavery of the people, end quote. And also Solon's own verses, we have this claim, quote, those who in this land suffered cruel servitude and trembled before master, I have made free, end quote. And so those are sometimes, I guess, interpreted in a more like general, like, you know, from a modern class warfare, sort of like Marxian perspective, you could see like, you know, the, the lower classes who are simply financially destitute or like enslaved by capital exploitation, um, Coulange asserts, no, this is quite literally Solon was freeing people from slavery and these were not debts. He was freeing them from paying a rent by which they were still bound to their former master. Coulange writes, quote, before Solon, these former clients, when they came into possession of the soil, could not become owners of it. For upon their fields, the sacred and inviolable bounds of the former patron still stood. Solon abolished them. Solon says, quote, it was an unhoped for work. I have accomplished it with the aid of the gods. I call to witness the goddess mother, black earth, whose landmarks I have in many places torn up. The earth, which was enslaved, is now free, end quote. And so we can see in Solon's reforms, which enfranchise the clients by giving them lands and by freeing them from the looming, looming uh, excuse me, threat of servitude, uh, in doing this, Solon violated religious law. He abandoned the previous dogmas by which the boundary stones signified the power of the gods, which one dares not offend, right? He rips up the boundary stones and thus breaks the old laws. And so in practice, what he does is he expands the electorate. Solon is credited with establishing the foundations of Athenian democracy. Um, you know, as I've stressed, Athens was sort of an unusual case, but, um, you know, because some of the Greek city-states never went democratic. And even when they were democratic, it was never a complete enfranchisement of the populace as we have today. 
Um, but the barrier to entry, which were, you know, these barriers were previously held up because they were religiously demanded, were now steadily become subject to political expediency. Just as the old religious offices ceased to signify political power and instead became subject to the political power, the old religious laws were becoming alterable by the rulers of the cities. And it's only in that innovation that a figure like Solon can emerge. And so the the people had begun to, they'd ceased to see the patriciate as something closed off by a religious boundary. And they'd begun to conceive of laws that, that could govern men that came from the minds of men. And so this all sets the stage for the third revolution, which is the entry of the plebs into the city. Collange records that the lower classes who lived outside the cities, whether they were called thetes or plebs or whatever, began to desire to enter, and they began to adopt their own forms of religion and worship, for one. I mean, sometimes imitating the practices of offering repasts or establishing hearths. Uh, The nobility doesn't seem to have taken this very seriously, but we see in the lower classes the desire to gain some means of becoming equal to the nobility in some way. In Athens, following Solon, the reforms of Cleisthenes divided the city into deems, which were not based on bloodline. These new forms of association resembled the ancient tribes and the gentes. You know, in the deems, one would have a new worship, right? And ceremonies specific to each and priests and judges and so on that were all internal to the deem. But all the free men of Athens were included in these associations regardless of their bloodline or relation to the old tribes. This revolution occurred not only at Athens, but also in Cyrene, Sicyon, Elis, and Sparta. Coulange asserts that this finally broke the power of the Eupatrids, or the Greek patriciate. Aristotle wrote of this development as though it were the most natural thing in the world. Quote, If one wished to found a democracy... He would proceed as Cleisthenes did at Athens. He would establish new tribes and new fratries. For the hereditary family sacrifices, he would substitute sacrifices where all men might be admitted. And he would associate and blend the people together as much as possible, being careful to break up all anterior associations. End quote. And so their whole social structure is so rooted in the religion that Aristotle says, yeah, I mean, if you want to change the social structure, you have to follow the patterns laid down by the old religion, only make them not according to bloodline if you wish to reform the social order. The form this revolution took in Rome is is very fascinating. So in Rome, it seemed that the patricians and the plebeians came to depend upon one another in a relationship that was more symbiotic maybe than some of the other city-states. In the days when the Romans warred against the Latins and conquered and destroyed the city of Alba, again, we're still in city-state era Rome, it seems that the Romans didn't need the plebs, as we mentioned. You know, we went over earlier the number of patricians and their clients, you know, these very large families, their number was so big that they could go fight their battles without their help when they were just fighting other Italian city-states. But before they could sort of begin to set their sights higher, right, they would need a larger army, and the plebeians could provide that. But they'd never been treated with any regard by Rome, you know, having no law to represent or protect them, and having nothing in common with the patricians. And the patricians didn't regard the plebeians' attempts at religiosity as genuine. Um, and they, you know, would try to use debt to enslave them into clientship, right? 
uh, or, you know, a patrician could slap or kill a plebeian and suffer no consequences. And so the two societies remain separate in almost everything, except that the patricians of Rome could easily impose their wills upon the plebs whenever they chose. And so given that situation, the plebs decided one day to depart. The historian Dionysius writes, uh, attributing the following words to the plebeians, quote, Since the patricians wish to possess the city alone, let them enjoy it at their ease. For us, Rome is nothing. We have neither hearths, nor sacrifices, nor country. We only leave a foreign city. No hereditary religion attaches us to this place. Every land is good for us. Where we find liberty, there shall be our country. End quote. That's the first example of a form of plebeian protest during the distant past of Rome, the plebeian secession. The lower classes, excluded from society, simply leave. They go to the other side of Mount Saker, and they found that life there was, it was hard, but they were able to gather what they needed to survive. Um, you know, they weren't going to starve to death, but they didn't know how to establish a new religion, which was, according to the ancient historians, the desire of the plebs. They wanted to establish a new lawful society based on the kinds of religion that they were familiar with, but which had been denied to them, from which they'd been excluded, right? Um, And so that's what the plebs really wanted was this new kind of ordered society based on, on religion which but of which they could be a part. And to do this, they would need the instruction of the Roman patres, right? Though, you know, maybe we might have some healthy skepticism about the Roman historians writing about this. Um, but nevertheless, we might assume the life of the plebs who seceded, you know, even if it was livable, it was more desolate up in the mountains, right? And meanwhile, in, in Rome... There's a debate among the senators. There's the hardliners who say, who cares about the plebeians? We don't need them. You know, they're basically just, you know, subhuman. They're not Rome. We're Rome, right? And then, nevertheless, there's the counter argument that Coulange presents. And, uh, you know, we hear this rather convincing argument from a aristocrat who is, um, or from the aristocratic perspective uh of those who are not um, so hardline and want to integrate the plebs. He writes, quote, Others, less faithful to the old principles or solicitous for the grandeur of Rome, were afflicted at the departure of the plebs. Rome would lose half its soldiers. What would become of it in the midst of Latins, Sabines, Etruscans, all enemies? The plebs had good qualities. Why could not these be made use of for the interests of the city? These senators desired, therefore, at the cost of a few concessions, of which they did not perhaps see all the consequences, to bring back to the city those thousands of arms that made the strength of the legions. End quote. Uh, and then skipping further down in the passage, quote, It was found, therefore, that the plebs and patricians, though they had almost nothing in common, could not live without each other. They came together and concluded a treaty of alliance. This treaty appears to have been made on the same terms as those which terminate a war between two different peoples, end quote. The situation is the same in almost every Greek polis. There was civil unrest or violence between the 
sort of the plebs and patricians of the various cities. And so we should take the situation at Rome as exemplary rather than unusual. We can guess that there had been enough unrest to make the plebs want to leave in the first place. And even though the ancient historians emphasize the secession, which would, you know, we might call it like a plebeian strike, it seems that there were eruptions of violence um, sort of surrounding this incident, given the framing of the reconciliation as a treaty of peace, right? Uh, continuing with, with the text, quote, By this treaty, the patrician did not agree that the plebeian should make a part of the religious and political city. It does not appear that the plebs demanded it. They agreed merely that in the future the plebs, having been organized into something like a regular society, should have chiefs taken from their own number. This is the origin of the tribuneship of the plebs, an entirely new institution which resembled nothing that the city had known before. The power of the tribune was not the same, uh, excuse me, not of the same nature as the authority of the magistrates. It was not derived from the city worship. The tribune performed no religious ceremony. He was elected without the auspices, and the consent of the gods was not necessary to create him. What then was the nature and what was the principle of his power? Here we must banish from our minds all modern ideas and habits and transport ourselves as much as possible into the midst of the ideas of the ancients. Up to that time, men had understood political authority only as an appendage to the priesthood. Thus, when they wished to establish a power that was not connected with worship and chiefs who were not priests, they were forced to resort to a singular device. For this, the day on which they created the first tribune, they performed a religious ceremony of a peculiar character. Historians do not describe the rites. They merely say that the effect was to render these first tribunes sacrosancti, inviolable. Now these words signify that the body of the tribune should be reckoned thenceforth among the objects which religion forbade to be touched and whose simple touch made a man unclean. Footnote, this is the proper sense of the word sacre. According to Livy, the epithet sacrosanctus was not at first applied to the tribune, but to the man who injured the person of the tribune. Returning to the passage, quote, Thus it happened, if some devout Roman, some patrician, met a tribune in the public street, he made it a duty to purify himself in returning home, as if his body had been defiled simply by the meeting. This sacrosanct character remained attached to the tribune during his whole term of office. In creating his successor, he transmitted the same character to him. End quote. And so, when the Greeks and Romans needed to make people who had no ancestry uh, organized into tribes and fratries, they simply made up a new form of tribe, right? Which was not based on ancestry, but was organized in the same manner and religiously based. And here in Rome, even though the tribune is an entirely new office, which was not created for a religious purpose, the ceremonies for creating the tribune seem to imitate that of a religious character. And so these remarkable figures, the tribunes, represent perhaps the first, the first significant and powerful office of the lower classes to ever arise in the course of history. Um, the first purely secular democratic um, office, right? Through the tribunes, though they had no power to direct the course of the Republic or to take part in the religious worship, through the tribunes, they had political power. The plebs had political power. 
it seems to have been created in a form appropriate to the mindset of the time, um, effectively imbuing a representative citizen with a sort of superstitious reverence. Um, and so why would you give someone that sort of power? Well, it's based on the perception of the patricians that the plebeians were necessary to their existence. And so as such, the plebs gained the rights to have chiefs, um, which in some sense stood in physical form for the respect that the patricians now had to show the plebs as a matter of practical necessity, as a condition of the treaty that settled the war, right? And you only do that if you were have a respect for the power that your opponent in the war could bring to bear against you. And so all of that respect is now channeled into a single person, the tribune. Uh, Coulange continues, quote, We do not sufficiently understand the ideas of the ancients to say whether this sacrosanct character rendered the person of the tribune honorable in the eyes of the patricians or marked him, on the contrary, as an object of malediction and horror. The second conjecture is more in accordance with probability. What is certain is that in every way the tribune was inviolable. The hand of the patrician could not touch him without grave impiety. The law concluded in these words, whose vagueness powerfully aided the future progress of the tribuneship, quote, no magistrate or private person shall have the right to do anything against a tribune, end quote. This privilege of inviolability extended as far as the body of the tribune could extend its direct action. If a plebeian was maltreated by a consul who condemned him to imprisonment, or by a creditor who laid hands on him, the tribune appeared, placed himself between them, intercessio and intervention, and stayed the patrician's hand. Who would have dared to do anything against a tribune or expose himself to be touched by him? End quote. And so this is like a very crude form of political power, again, somewhat outside and parallel to the existing system, the existing society within the city, right? But with this office, which is purely political and created from a political need and for a political end, the Romans take another step in changing their fundamental ideas about law and governance. Now, there are, of course, non-religious offices created in Greece, too, none of which really resemble the tribune, but which were purely political magistracies. And so over time, the old religious offices became purely symbolic and ceremonial, purely concerned with other worldly matters, and all the political power moved out of the religious sphere. In Rome, meanwhile, while the religious pretext for the Senate's power continued in the popular consciousness, the rules began to be bent. First, there was only one tribune, but over the years, the number grew to 10. At first, the tribunes were not allowed inside the Senate house, and so they sort of lingered near the entryway. Then later, they were allowed inside, and so it went, right? Another important step was the integration of the plebeians into the legions. Um, it's unlikely that Rome could have achieved anything close to its military success in the conquest of the Italian peninsula without the addition of the plebs to their army. The army was arranged according to wealth, with those who could afford the best armor fighting in front, the poorest being reduced to sort of skirmishers who took up the rear. Those who could afford to ride on horseback were called equestrians and represented some of the most valuable fighters in battle, and this is how the social class of equestrians springs up in Rome. 
Meanwhile, the spoils of war bring wealth into Italy. More of it obviously flows to the patricians, but the plebeians who fought with them could bring home riches as well. And unlike most of Greece, the Roman patricians did not reject the rich plebeians because soon the more that they were integrated into society, the plebeians, you know, with the land reforms of the Licino-Sextian laws, which allowed the plebs the use of public lands for farming, um, the richer they became and the more respectable they became in society. More and more plebeians found themselves financially successful. And while there were assuredly some patricians who were like opposed to the the uh, plebeians, excuse me, assimilating into the upper classes, uh, many more of them welcomed them. As Coulanche points out, the, the Roman nobility were much richer than the Greek nobility on just on the whole, right? They were known for their attention to their fortunes and to their frugality, and they increasingly found military successes that brought more wealth and slaves into this like budding empire that's growing uh, in the Italian peninsula. And so the patricians were less threatened by the prospect of men with no bloodline becoming rich because they were astoundingly rich already um, and often encouraged the plebeians to join the upper classes. And this wasn't strictly out of benevolence, but could be politically useful. As the plebs gained the ability to participate in the legislative process, you know, this separation of powers between patrician and pleb necessitated that the political parties in the Senate begin to cultivate alliances with plebs in the plebeian assemblies. And so they became the plebs and patricians sort of integrated into a single government. They became, perhaps more importantly, integrated into a single military. And the plebs with the lands of the Ager Publicus began to form up the backbone of the Roman Empire as a hardy class of smallholder farmers with an investment in the nation because of the potential for advancement into its upper echelons. And so the fourth revolution then is the coming of democracy, which is a foregone conclusion at this point. Again, no form of universal suffrage is ever created. It was always only the males who voted. Often democracy was exercised through committees in which the agenda was set by aristocrats and where the voting was heavily weighted toward the uh, aristocratic votes and in which no amendment could be offered, only a yes or no vote. Some systems like Athens were more uh, democratic. Athens enfranchised perhaps up to a third of their population. Other Greek city-states like Sparta never went democratic. They never left the form of oligarchy. There are other things to consider about this phase of the ancient city's development. The religion which once ruled them, as we've mentioned, it's like a federated system of absolute dictatorship. Um, but with the familial structure greatly altered and reduced in its power and rigidity, and with the tribal structures sort of circumvented by democratic committees, right? And with the plebs entering the city and holding offices within it, and in Rome, even advancing into the patriciate, right? Basically, all the sources of power beneath the city had been dissolved, and sort of the religious pretext of the indivisibility and inviolability of all those structures that made up the city also began to um, dissolve. And when it came to the kings, right, uh, the autocratic power of the monarch was like the first thing to go. And so basically, this is all to say, over time, the city 
became a sort of absolute political power where the weakening of the religious beliefs weakened all the other checks against the parties that ruled the city. And so what happened was a sort of absolute power of the oligarchies. And the lower classes always lamented under this arrangement. But with the franchise expanding into something that's more democratic, um, you know, the ancestral claims to power, right? The old religious claims to power, these couldn't challenge the state. But as we've talked about, the situation emerges where the you have these uh, ty- tyrant figures, these dictators who want to draw on the power of the democratic energy and the sort of hatred that the common people had, the plebeians had for living under these oligarchies. Um, and so, you know, th- even at this time, there's not really a concept of like individual liberty or human rights in the way that we would think of it today. Um, the government of the city had become all-encompassing in total. And we should also point out that even when democracy did take over, right, this could manifest, say, in the form of ostracism in which the members of the city-state vote on who to banish. You know, you sort of take a poll, simple direct democracy, we're banishing you. And that's final. That is, you know, the absolute power of the city coming down upon you, only it's not oligarchic, it's democratic, but it's still most people would say somewhat unjust um, or like, uh, you know, would, would, would seem like unfair or <laughs> like a un- unreasonable thing happening to you, an immoral thing happening to you if you're the one person that gets banished. Um, anyway, uh, Coulange talks a little bit about what it was like to live under a democratic state in ancient Greece. He says, quote, it was a heavy charge to be a citizen of a democratic state. There was enough to occupy almost one's whole existence, and there remained very little time for personal affairs and domestic life. Therefore, Aristotle says, very justly, that the man who had to labor in order to live could not be a citizen. Such were the requirements of democracy. The citizen, like the public functionary of the day, was required to devote himself entirely to the state. He gave it his blood in war and his time during peace. He was not free to lay aside public affairs in order to give more attention to his own. It was rather his own that he was required to neglect in order to labor for the profit of the city, end quote. And so in democratic societies, the state becomes this all-encompassing thing just as much as in the oligarchic societies. The democratic experiments in many of the city-states turned to factionalism very quickly, Um, Not everyone could be as successful and relatively peaceful as Athens. Athens had its own share of political upheavals and coups, but it seems to have been um, very good at avoiding the kind of worse that the other city-states endured. Um, And since political power meant the ability to enforce one's interests, often the partisan politics skewed along class lines. Uh, Everywhere there were people attempting to enrich themselves or pursue their own special interest. Uh, Coulange puts it bluntly here, quote, we have seen that the city, especially among the Greeks, had unlimited power, that liberty was unknown, and that individual rights were nothing when opposed to the will of the state. It followed that a majority of votes might decree the confiscation of the property of the rich, and that the Greeks saw neither illegality nor injustice in this. What the state had declared was right, end quote. And so, 
again, just to emphasize, I don't know if I did a good job of maybe putting it a little bit earlier when we were coming to the revolution on democracy, that it's over time, these changes in beliefs had basically left it so the state was the only thing. And so without these concepts that we've only developed in modernity sort of after the rise of Christianity, right? Um, without anachronistically drawing on these concepts such as, you know, individual rights and freedoms, there is no reason in principle, like following the course that we've gone upon here, that the state can't do whatever it wants, right? Um and the only thing that had served as a check on the state doing whatever it wanted were rival sources of power or the confederated nature of power within the state. But as that begins to break down, um, the state sort of just becomes a weapon or a tool uh, to get what you want once, you know, especially once the old aristocracies begin to fall in this sort of struggle between the oligarchies and the democracies. And that, uh, that really plays out on a grand scale in the Peloponnesian War, which we'll talk about later in the, the season. But so we see these numerous attempts by means of legislation to score victories in the class war or to reward friends and punish enemies with the apparatus of the state. Uh, Aristotle says that at Megara, when the populist party gained power, they began expropriating the wealth of the rich and what began as a handful of enemies being stripped of property, you know, soon ran into the dozens and then in the hundreds. In Samos, the popular party gained control. They executed 200 of their enemies, banished twice as many as that and divided up all the lands and houses. At Miletus, this became an all-out war between the rich and the poor. The people drove the rich out of the city. According to Heracleides of Pontus, they then seized the children of the rich and trampled them with oxen. When the rich regained control of the city, they took the children of the poor and burned them alive. Um, we might notice that having eliminated, eliminated uh, the sort of rigid hierarchy based on uncrossable religious boundaries um, and all those counterbalancing powers. Um, the war between castes begins to shift to like a war between rich and poor, right? The categories that rich and poor represent are a little more fluid than that of like patrician and plebeian. But the aristocracy no longer has that sort of like that self-assuredness of a sacred religious boundary that sets them above the common people that's been sort of worn away and without any taboos or superstitions to stop them, it sort of becomes a, a zero sum game of expropriation and violence and civil conflict. And so this results in the emergence of the tyrants, as we've mentioned, the autocratic rulers, they seize control on a wave of popular energy. Um, Aristotle defines the tyrant as those who defended the lower classes and attacked the aristocracy. The aristocrats always opposed demagogues because of their fear that they would become tyrants. And we see that same paranoia uh, hundreds of years later, as we discussed with Caesar. Um, over the course of the democratic struggles in the Greek city-states, multiple tyrants uh, arise. N the noble or aristocratic historians always portray these tyrants as cruel and it seems likely that they were, from the evidence we have, um, you know, they were willing to divide up lands and give them to the people, though, 
uh, recognizing now that having a sheer force of numbers could make you the most empower, you know, powerful among all the people in the land. And so with those sacred religious boundaries removed, there's no internal logic to prevent this. And, um, you know, because of that, the tyrants are able to establish themselves by basically, uh, you might call it bribery, right? Uh, and meanwhile, because the civil conflict is so prolonged, um, the people are often willing to accept the social order under, under the tyrants in order to just have any order at all, right? Um, now, Rome avoided this sort of conflict of the orders for many years, but it seems that they just forestalled the inevitable, right? Um, or they they didn't get their tyrants until the Caesars came, which was many hundreds of years after Greece. Um, and this is for a variety of factors. For one, their patricians are more willing to compliment compromise with the plebs um we could consider maybe the outsized power of the plebs to influence the politics of rome and uh also they they had a well-organized aristocracy that nevertheless had a meritocratic sort of safety valve to allow for upward mobility and so rome didn't get overtaken by tyrants for some time but uh in greece on the other hand theagenes uh ambushes the the rich uh, of the city of Megara. He slaughters them and all of their herds. Aristodemus, he abolishes the deaths of the poor and takes away the lands of the rich men at Cumae. Those are just a few examples, but there's countless others. And there were always purges, expropriation of property, uh, use of it for bribery, right? Tyrants were often assassinated or overthrown is the other thing that the historians record. It almost always in, ends badly from the uh, tyrants. There's almost none of them that live to a ripe old age and see their reign completed, right? Because the only thing propping up their governments was physical force and the fickle loyalty of the people. And paranoia was always running rampant. The tyrants were paranoid and aristocracies are paranoid about tyrants and so on and so forth. Um, now, the Athenian democracy, as we've mentioned, was far more successful. Uh, but during the Peloponnesian War, uh, in which Athens fights against the oligarchic Sparta and their sort of alliance that's more ideological oligarchic, whereas Athens and the Delian League is more ideologically democratic, Athens loses that war. And then it has its period of 30 tyrants in which it's ruled as an oligarchy. And so that means in the war of democracy versus oligarchy in Greece, democracy is ultimately kind of defeated, right? I mean, Athens does eventually restore its democracy, but um, it was never the great city politically that it used to be at that point. And, um, you know, in most of the other places of ancient Greece, democracy gave way to the rule of tyrants. And we can kind of understand why ancient historians looking at this might call democracy a failed experiment. Um, and so many of the ancient writers, they see democracy as this sort of intermediate stage to the dissolution of society. Um, and so, you know, when they look back, uh, you know, on how things had proceeded, a lot of the ancient historians sort of came to see the age of kings as the golden age. And oligarchy is like the first degeneration, right? And then democracy is like a further degeneration, and then mob rule, right? And then it eventually that turns into autocracy, which is like a debased, you know, pale imitation of what 
the age of monarchy used to be. Now, in historical truth, the things that finally and irrevocably changed the state of affairs were some things I've kind of implied before in the first episode of this um, talk about Coulange. First, the Roman conquest. Rome, as we all know, would go on to expand outward from Italy, and it conquers Greece, defeats the Gauls, expands all across the Mediterranean. And by the time the Romans turned all of these ancient cities into its subjects, and partly as a result of this, something else had started to happen. The minds of men had begun to change. Uh, and de Coulange uh, puts the question to us, quote, could they still believe in the divinities of the primitive ages, of those dead men who lived in the tomb, of those lares who had been men, of those holy ancestors whom it was necessary to continue to nourish with food? Such a faith became impossible. Such beliefs were no longer on a level with the human mind. They still reigned there for a long time. But from the 5th century before our era, reflecting men freed themselves from these errors. They had other ideas of death. Some believed in annihilation, others in a second and entirely spiritual existence in a world of spirits. In these cases, they no longer admitted that the dead lived in the tomb, supporting themselves upon offerings. They also began to have too high an idea of the divine to persist in believing that the dead were gods. On the contrary, they imagined the soul going to seek its recompense in the Elysian fields, or going to pay the penalty for its crimes and by a notable progress they no longer deified any among men, except those whom gratitude or flattery placed above humanity. End quote. The new ideas he mentions, which began to emerge as the social and political order was fading, the old order was fading, um, the ones who bring these ideas to the forefront are some of our old friends, the pre-Platonic philosophers, excuse me, um, and so in light of everything we've considered, we shall see that even the most distant figures from modernity, like Pythagoras and Anaxagoras, were radical innovators in respect to the doctrines that came before them. You know, the, the fact that Pythagoras was also sort of the equivalent of a cult leader perhaps makes more sense in light of reading the ancient city, since his philosophical positions were akin to like, I mean, it's like the highest blasphemy in light of the traditional beliefs, right? Because he's promoting these ideas which are basically religious in character and outside of the existing religion. I mean, so Pythagoras attacked the idea of the provincial deity, right? He opposed the local religions. He led his followers away from these practices of sacrificing and making offerings to, you know, their regional or local or familial worship. He taught them instead about the supreme being, right? Heraclitus criticize the religious festivals. Remember, he says the, the revelers wash themselves in blood, and he compares this to people swimming in filth and calling themselves clean. He says that when the, you know, the Dionysian revelers pass on to the next world, they'll find something that they don't expect. And he claimed for himself knowledge of the truth which no other men had access to. Anaximander conceived of the divine as the aperon, the indefinite, the sort of formless beginning from which all things spring, which is effectively a phenomenon prior to all such gods and deities. So Anaxagoras 
rejects the gods of the Britannium, and he refused to fulfill his duties as a citizen, such as fulfilling the office of magistrate. He didn't attend the assemblies. And so like Socrates, who would follow later, the Athenians had him put to death. Now, speaking of Socrates, after the execution of Socrates by the Athenians, you know, for corrupting the youth with his philosophy and not believing in the gods of the city, his student Plato came to prominence, and later his student Aristotle. And they usher in an entirely new era of Greek society. Now the law is no longer laid down by the heavens, and it's certainly no longer provincial. They're, they're preaching something that's universal and binding on all men. In Aristotle's words, quote, the law is reason, end quote. It was for this principle that Socrates stood, and it was for that idea that he died. And in addition to all the figures we've mentioned, there were countless philosophers and schools of philosophy which arose and continued this process of challenging and criticizing the old dogma, as well as proposing ideas where, you know, that would have sounded absolutely insane to the founders of these ancient cities, right? And still in those days, very few people had the education to even be familiar with the work of somebody like Aristotle, right? Very few would even have cause to ponder how, you know, uh, for example, Epicurus had advocated for the wise man to take no part in the city life at all and to retire from the excessive duties of democracy or the humiliation of living under oppressive tyrants and uh, aristocrats, right? Um, Epicurus is the kind of figure that... Um, can only emerge after centuries of uh, philosophy and this p revolution in political thought where politics has been separated from uh, religion and religious duties. Um, we might consider uh, work of the later Stoics, right? Directed men to focus their attention on their own personal virtue. You know, the Stoics didn't call for men to abandon uh, government, uh, in the same way that Epicurus did. You know, Epicurus praises the obscure life of one's own sort of individual desires, dreams, and ideas, and individual friendships should be the center of your life, right? And you shouldn't bother yourself with these grand political ambitions. The Stoics don't really tell people, you know, I mean, Marcus Aurelius gives us one of the great Stoic texts, and he didn't abandon political ambitions. But um, Zeno, for example, Right Here's a later Stoic who argues that human beings have worth not just as a citizen, but as individual human beings, right? People like Socrates and the Stoics and a whole host of others had argued that virtue was something higher and more important than civic duty or religious piety. And they'd elevated reason as the highest law, something above all men, something uh, which seemed quite outside of the religious, right? And at times hostile to it. And we see the threat that Athens perceived in Socrates accordingly. So these new philosophical ideas alone were not enough to fully end the old religion, though. By the time Rome conquered the Mediterranean, the old political and social order was gone. And though some of the old ideas still lingered and, you know, some of the vestiges still remained, um, now, as we've sort of mentioned, the empire was spread out across these vast and distant lands, and you had temp temples erected to Jupiter in cities on the other side of the ocean. And people began to entertain these ideas of um, 
gods that were not just provincial, right? Uh, more, more people than just the students of the philosophers. But still, as we mentioned, you know, about all these sort of superstitions and traditions of ancient Rome, these vestiges survive. And who knows how long they might have survived had Rome not experienced one of the most important events in human history, the advent of Christianity, which happens within the borders of the Roman Empire. With the spread of the Christian religion, entirely new ideas of the afterlife arise, the social hierarchy upon which Rome is based and upon which Greece was based in ages past, that's now perceived as unjust. The universal equality of men was proclaimed, and mercy and justice became virtues, and all men are said to be brothers. Um, at least all men are brothers who accept the sacrifice of Christ, but, you know, quibbling. To the Christians, you know, all people are baptized into one body, or they can be baptized into one body, whether they are descending from Jews or Gentiles. The days of religions for certain people, or for certain races or nations, was definitively over with Christianity. And what's more, Christianity exists in that tradition where it's more than content to allow the political law to develop separately from its own religious dictates. You know, as Jesus says, render unto Caesar, unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. And so Collange therefore writes, quote, law was independent. It could draw its rules from nature, from the human conscience, from the powerful idea of the just that is in men's minds. It could develop in complete liberty, could be reformed, and improved without obstacle, could follow the progress of morals, and could conform itself to the interests and social needs of every generation, end quote. And so we have those four revolutions that we talked about, the revolution of overthrowing primogeniture, the clients become free, the plebs enter the city, democracies challenge the oligarchies, and then we have the Roman Empire expanding, we have these new ideas of the philosophers, these are sort of like the downstream ideological growths on the soil sort of laid by these social revolutions and then finally christianity and that crushes all that remains of all the old beliefs and the old belief system so collange writes in the final lines of the book quote our study must end at this limit which separates ancient from modern politics we have written the history of a belief it was established and human society was constituted. It was modified and society underwent a series of revolutions. It disappeared and society changed its character. Such was the law of ancient times. End quote. And with that, we have, uh, we're done talking about the unique perspective on the ancient world that's provided by Numa Denis Fustel de Collange. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think when we take the time to examine the entire history, the rise and fall of this belief, we gain great insights into who the Greeks really were and how they saw the world and how they might look at us, right? Again, that's my favorite way to approach history. Don't concern yourself, at least primarily speaking, with what you think of them, what judgments you would make about them when you're studying a historical civilization or culture try to figure out what they would think of you, right? That's really, I think, the the way to inhabit their perspective. And, um, you know, it's interesting too. It's like when you talk about just the Greeks and what the Greeks were like, right? 
they didn't have a final and static cultural character. Their entire story is one of movement and the shifting of the political status quo, the modification of these religious ideas, and the, ultimately the transformation of hu the human mind and human beliefs, right? That's in, this whole story plays out in ancient Greece. And uh, many of these elements uh, were in Nietzsche's study in classical philology of the Greek civilization and the course that it took, very influential on him. And so next week, we're going to talk about an individual figure who lived within the time of these revolutions. We're going to look at Nietzsche's dissertation from Schulpforta on the topic of his favorite Greek poet, Theognis of Megara. That's all for this week, everyone. Signing off. If you enjoyed the Nietzsche podcast or found it helpful, you can visit us and support the show at patreon.com slash untimelyreflections. The link is in the description. Or just share the show with any of your friends that you think might enjoy it or on social media. Thank you for your support.